This is the reality of Revelation chapter 4. That the Lord is worthy. Worthy to judge. Worthy to redeem. And of course, ultimately, therefore, worthy of worship. It's tempting, and of course, that is how we will structure the message this morning, is around the throne room of God. Because it's mentioned 11 times in all of these 11 verses. And described in many different ways. But also this idea of worth. That he is worthy of worship because of who he is. And we've not just seen this in Revelation. And we're not going to spend all of our time this morning. We're going to try to push through through these 11 verses, because really it's 4 and 5 that go together. And then we're going to see 5 over the next two weeks and find ourselves looking at the worthy worship of the Lamb on Christmas morning, which I'm very excited for. But it is throughout Scripture, whenever you enter the throne room, whether it's in Isaiah 6, whether it's in the visions of Ezekiel, or whether it is John here, you see the consistent theme of the majesty and the worth of God in such a way that you can't really describe. You can try with human words. In many ways here what we have is a description of John just trying to describe the best he can what he's seeing in this vision. And really you can see like verse 3, the best he can do is to say it's like this. This is an event, this is a reality where It is true, you had to be there. You will have to be there to understand what it's like. Because all he can use is his best comparisons. And he was sitting, the one sitting was like a jasper stone and like a sardius. Like an emerald at the end of verse 3 in appearance. Of course, that also makes this a bit difficult. Because... uh, Revelation has a lot of this language. And so we're trying to understand the reality, the truth behind this. I would say a very typical sermon. If you want to learn how to preach with training wheels. And this may not surprise you, but I still preach with training wheels. I have an outline and I have my little things. And uh, the most classic way, and this is just any kind of speech. Especially if you're expositing a text... You try to explain the text, try to illustrate the text, and apply the text. So every once in a while, especially if I'm struggling with a passage, I'll just throw that on paper. Explain the text, illustrate the text, apply the text. When you come to Revelation 4, it's kind of like the homiletics of the, the, the art of preaching. It's like a nightmare in the sense of how do you preach this? Because it's illustrations. So how do you go about illustrating illustrations? And then it's only got one application, which is worship, worship, worship. And so if you're wondering what this has to do with you, this is one of those things where this isn't a, I would say it is extremely practical at its core in the sense that it's going to cause us to see God for who he is and hopefully then impact the way that everything we do outside of this moment Sunday morning. But there's also a sense in which this is all about the Lord. This is all about his church, his angels worshiping him. And we're coming alongside 
And if we get anything else, I think we, we stray a bit if we got to get in some way too practical. This is an unapologetic passage that is theological. And so there's a way in which I think there's implications for our lives, which we will all talk maybe a little bit about. But it is to say, I think it's okay that you're here this morning and you're going to get theology. You're going to get these truths. And the Lord knew that John needed it. The Lord knew that his seven churches needed to understand this, the early church. And by representation, churches through all the ages, including you and including me. And so, here we are, Revelation chapter 4. If you want to, just to see it with your own eyes, you can flip back to Revelation chapter 1, verse 19. Because I think this is important that we see the outline here as far as our progression. Because we have left something and we have moved on. John has been commanded in verse 19 of chapter 1, Therefore write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. There's a way in which, and you can feel the weight of it, seven sermons between chapters 2 and 3, one sermon on chapter 4, where we are moving, where he has already said, these are the things which you have seen, the vision of Christ. We've seen the seven churches, which I believe are the things which are. And then after this, the things which will take place after these things. And if you go back to chapter 4, we're going to enter this setting after these things. John is going to look, and you're into a different part of the vision. And so it's going to speed up a little bit now from the seven sermons in uh, two chapters. It's going to speed up a little bit as we go through one here, two at least in chapter 5, all the way through 19. And what is missing here is we've talked a little bit along the way. And I think, depending on how you understand the 24 elders, we understand that one of the reasons you have moved forward in time is the things that are include not only those seven churches, but the prophetic nature. This is a prophecy of those seven churches and of the whole church age. And so we understand here that the throne in heaven is a comfort. It's a reminder of the the glory of Christ and what he has done, but it's all clouded in the judgment that is coming. So you got to keep all that in perspective. This is good news for the one who has a right relationship with Christ. But what's coming is the seven seals and the judgments. And so keep that in mind as we move all the way through. But we're transported into the throne in heaven. And I think there will be the church as well. The church being raptured before the day of the Lord, before the great tribulation comes upon the earth. And so we find ourselves here with John, first describing this after these things. And what he says is he, he looked, and behold, verse 1, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. That voice that sounds like a trumpet you can find and see elsewhere, I believe is the voice of Christ who is calling him up and saying, it's time to move forward. The churches have heard what they need to hear. Now the churches need to hear this, but understand this is a hope of what will come. Let me show you what will happen after 
these things. And if you had to, again, look at the overarching central theme, it is that this is the throne. That the Lord is on his throne. The throne of God, as I said, mentioned 11 times in these 11 verses. And we're going to see that because of what we see, the perspectives we look at of his throne, we're going to see that he, of course, is worthy of worship. Worthy both to judge, to redeem, and of worship. Starting here in verse 2, you're going to see the first of six different perspectives of God's throne. Each of them are used by these um, phrases, these prepositions, if you're loving your, your English. The on, the around, the from, the before, in, around. And all these phrases describe what he sees at God's throne. What he sees as he beholds heaven's court. After the voice says, come John, let me show you. He immediately, he says, verse 2, I was in the spirit and behold a throne was standing in heaven and one seating on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And so the first kind of, you're just wanting to keep notes along the way, this first perspective is the perspective of what or whom is sitting on the throne. If you go to a Christian bookstore, probably in the last 20 years, it's pretty common that you're going to find within the bestseller side of sections, or even in your airport and you find your religious section, that there's going to be a book of someone who has claimed that they have gone to heaven and come back. But what we find in Scripture is the two people, Paul, who says he was there, and he was not allowed to talk about it, and John, who is transported there in spirit, and is told to say this about it, give a vastly different description than you will find in those books. Usually it's, it's something very horizontal, a, a relation, a, a grandfather, or, or something that they have seen, something that for us makes sense to our simple and kind of temporal minds. John describes things you can't comprehend. And you go, why would you write things that don't make sense? It's because there's a truth behind that, that we're never going to fully understand the throne room of God until we are probably there ourselves. I know some of you guys have Ashland backgrounds and Ashland days, and there's kind of, uh, last year they had the big thing with the, the UFO, for those of you who were there. And uh, my uh, dad's family roots, my grandfather went to Ashland. And w one of the comical things about a policeman who this story came from that a movie came out of that he saw an alien, that he was abducted by an alien, is that he saw an alien with antennas. And my dad, not myself, who pointed this out, why would he see an alien with antennas? Well, if you are a child of the 50s and a child of the 60s. If you watch sci-fi movies, what did you see? Aliens with antennas. 
And now in 2022, you go, where's the antenna? Right? Why would an alien with advanced technology flying around the galaxy need an antenna? I view those stories of people who've gone to heaven at times where you can see almost, I think, the fakeness of it in that they use our terms. And probably in 20 years, you'd go, that doesn't make any sense. And so... Here, John, though, when you find yourself and you go, it doesn't make sense, or even we'll try to bridge the gap of understanding some of these things and appearances and stones, some of this Old Testament reference, some of it's just we have to bridge that cultural gap. They'd have an understanding. But even their understanding would be this is still simply like this. They're doing, he's doing his best in a way that God has inspired, that we understand a picture here that is helping us understand and be hopefully encouraged as well as understand what is coming in the future after these things. And what we see here is on the throne, John's amazement is seeing God standing. That is even not just God himself in the sense of he is spirit, but the throne is described. A throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. I paused there in my study a bit because this seems like I must have misread that or someone translated that wrong. Why is the throne standing and the individual sitting? This is a way of highlighting God's sovereign rule over everything. It's not simply, as one author put it, a piece of furniture in heaven, but that it is is the posture of the throne is standing. And the one sitting on the standing throne is ruling from heaven. Heaven, it is fixed, it is permanent, it is, it is unshakable, unchanging. That should be comforting in light of not only what we experience in this life, but especially in the context of where we've moved, right? What's he preparing us for? He's preparing us for all of these judgments and God's wrath that has been stored up, being poured out on the world We might question his timing, but this is a reminder that he is always perfectly in control. He's sitting on the throne. And it says it was like a jasper stone and a sardis in appearance. What does that mean? Well, it it depicts this throne here in such a way of these stones that were known as crystal and clear, not like if you look at a jasper stone today, that would be perhaps muddy. This would be one in ancient times that was clear, crystal clear. Perhaps even some say better probably described as what we would consider a diamond, brilliantly reflecting all the colors of the spectrum, something bright and clear and refracting light everywhere. And a sardis, which we saw the city of Sardis, where this stone gets its name from, is a fiery blood red ruby. Expresses the shining beauty of God's glory. And perhaps as well, his wrath that is going to be poured out to the rebellious world as we see through the next 13 chapters, 14 chapters. Might be further symbolism if you look at Exodus, we won't go there, but if you want to write it down, Exodus 28, 17 through 20, those are the first and the last stones of 
the high priest's breastplate, representing the firstborn and the lastborn of Israel, the twelve sons of Jacob. The beginning and the end. John's vision here, again, although I think we can draw peace and comfort, John is going to fall down. The 24 elders we're going to see are going to fall down, and the angels are going to fall down. And it's meant here to flash a little bit of a warning of what is to come if one is not in Christ. And then comfort if you are part of the redeemed who are singing, worthy is the Lamb. But it is flashing in this splendous way. That's the one who sits on the throne. Well, verse 4 continues that not only are we looking at, or that second part of 3b, the second half of the verse 3, you're, you're going to see that it's not only what he sees is on the throne, or who is on the throne, the throne itself and the one on the throne, but also around the throne. We're not very good with prepositions in English, but describing. But again, this is just a way to say, um, look at it from all different angles that you might have a full appreciation of everything that goes on. And here you see that around the throne, there was a rainbow, it says. There was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. He's just trying the best he can do. And you go, but rainbows aren't green. Well, there's some green in a rainbow, right? Perhaps here a reminder of God's promise, Genesis 9, that he, in the midst of pouring out wrath on the world, destruction, that there is a glimmer of hope, a glimmer of redemption there. He sees that rainbow there in in emerald appearance. Describing the comfort within the fiery judgment. His wrath, as one author put it, never operates at the expense of his faithfulness. That's a comfort for for us. That is, wrath never operates at the expense of his faithfulness. And around, not only is there this green or at least a the dominant color of that rainbow being emerald in appearance and green. But also, verse 4, we're introduced to these 24 elders who will continue to play a part throughout the book of Revelation. And they are around the throne as well. They're around the throne where 24 thrones. And upon those thrones, I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their head. A lot of debate over who are these? Who do they stand for? I think there seems to be some consensus that this is a description of a broader group. Even as you look at the end of chapter 5 and you look at verse 11. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne of living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands and thousands. And so this 24 does appear, and it's used elsewhere in the Old Testament as a representative number. But who are they? It's been suggested that they're a unique angelic group, perhaps. But I tend to look here and think best, and we'll look a little bit why, 
that they are likely humans, representatively of humans, and representative specifically of the church that is now with the Lord. It could be as well the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles and, and perhaps looking at that unity in the church, but I'd be more confident at least saying I think this is representative of the believers in the church there that he sees. Because again, this is after these things. This is after what I would understand. This is after the church age. He is transported in to heaven. And another reason is you look and you see elder and throughout the New Testament, you're not going to find that word described ever of angels. And even the nature of that word, not a leader in the church, but even its core of it being an older, more mature person, someone with white hair, that's not really appropriate for angels who do not age. You do see angels appear in white, but here, those 24 thrones and 24 elders, they're clothed in white garments, and far more often you see those garments, those white garments associated with the church. In fact, Sardis is promised in chapter 3 to be clothed in white garments. He advised the Laodiceans to buy from me white garments so that you may clothe yourselves. And at the marriage supper of the Lamb, his bride will clothe herself with fine linen, bright and clean. So those white garments represent this purity, this righteousness that believers have at salvation. And crowns as well. Believers, the church reigning with Christ, i.e. thrones, and having crowns, you see both those applied to the church and not applied to the angels in that specific way. They're never promised, that is, angels are never promised these crowns, but the believers are. In fact, Christ promised his crown. If we go back to the seven churches, this crown to the loyal believers, those who overcome those believers at Smyrna, chapter 2. And so I think it's best to understand them representing here the church. And of course, then it's no shock to find the church doing what the church has and always will do, which is they will be worshiping and bowing down at the throne. A larger group than, I said, just those 24. We will have, if we understand it as the church, the crowns. We will live where the Lord has prepared us our places when we've gone to be with him. So that is what is seen as around the throne. And thirdly, you're going to see from the throne, he continues in verse 5, that out of the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. If you're worried, this is the shorter one, so we're going to get to all six. Because this is simply describing, and I, and I titled this, The Thunderous Throne, and whether it's Ezekiel or whether it's Isaiah, what you see is this loud noise resounding. I had to look up peals of thunder. Something repetitive. Boom, boom, boom. Is described as what he sees out of that throne are flashes, lightning, these sounds, these repeating booms of thunder. They're associated, as you see throughout the Old Testament, especially in Exodus, Ezekiel, with God's presence. But turn to Revelation chapter 8. 
verse 5. Revelation 8, 5. And you'll see there that it's a description not only of the Old Testament, but here of these judgments that flow. That the judgments are coming out from the throne of God, which makes sense because ultimately He is the one in control. 8.5 says, Then the angel took the censer and filled it with the fire of the altar and threw it to the earth. And there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. And then 11, Revelation 11, 19. And the sanctuary of God, which is in heaven, was opened and the ark of his covenant appeared in his sanctuary. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. Just one more, 16 verses 18. And there, Revelation 16, 18. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there was a great earthquake such as there had not been since man came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it and so mighty. All of the coming judgments in chapters 6 through 19, they're, they're emanating, they're flowing from, I believe, this throne. And so John sees a preview of what will be unleashed on the world and poured out in the coming chapters. He sees that coming from the throne. And then, fourthly, you see what is then before the throne. Back to Revelation chapter 4. Second part of verse 5 says, There were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. See the language. He just says, I got to use this picture that I can paint for you, but you still won't fully grasp. We've seen the importance of seven and the idea of in, in Hebrew it means fullness. We talked a lot about the seven churches and the seven spirits of God before. Talking about this is just talking about the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the fullness of the Spirit is present with the Lord. And the seven lamps there burning, lamps of fire. Different really than the lampstands, which are the churches in chapter 1. But they're identifying here with the fullness of the Lord. There is comfort for those in Christ that this Spirit, who is the Comforter, the paraclete that Jesus promised to come to build up His church, is used for, for that purpose in, in the church age, but also understanding that that same Comforter will be the consumer for those who reject Him. And he says it's something like this sea of glass. You look at the end of Revelation, it seems that there talks about there's no sea. And I don't know if that says there's no large bodies of water. But it is to say here, he's simply using this as a descriptor, that it's like a sea of glass. A vast, imagine a pavement of glass. I don't know, a basketball court paved with glass, shining brilliantly like crystal if you go to Exodus 24.10, something similar to what this Israel is cutting the covenant with God at Sinai. 
is described there. Something, I imagine, so bright you want to look and can't look but want to see. That is what he sees before and out in front of the throne. And then in and around the throne, he continues in 6, that in the center, second part of 6, and around the throne, he introduces to, just like the 24 elders, he play an important role, these four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. That is saying, they see, they know. And the first creature was like a lion. And the second creature like a calf. And the third creature had a face like that of a man. And the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them, having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night they do not cease, we'll see here in a moment, to sing, Holy, Holy, Holy. Now if you come here this morning and you have no biblical background, you go, that sounds crazy. It's still weird. But it's less weird when you understand this is coming out of an understanding of not only Daniel 7 and Isaiah, but I think in particular Ezekiel. I know it's a little bit small, but if you can read it, you won't have to to turn there. But you're introduced to these four living creatures in different ways, which I think are best understood as angels, particularly the the seraphim who have a distinct job and role before the throne of God. But they're introduced here. And they're described a little different, but it would, I think it makes sense, as you'll see in verse 6. Why would they appear one way to John? Well, John is viewing them from one perspective when, as weird as it may sound, they have four faces and four wings. All of these things are true of each one of them, it would seem, the way he describes, the way the best he can describe to us. And he says, Ezekiel, this, in his vision, Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 5, and within... As he's looking at the the throne room of God, there were figures with the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their appearance. They had the likeness of a man. And each of them had four faces and four wings. And so here each one is described as a single side. So it would seem perhaps they they, they have all four. But their legs, verse 7, were straight and their feet were like calves' hooves. And they sparkled like the gleam of the burnished bronze. And under their wings and their four sides were four hands of man. As for the faces and wings of the four of them, their wings touched one another. And their faces did not turn as they went. Each went straight forward. And as for the likeness of their faces, each had the face of a man. All four had the face of a lion. And the right face of the bull on the left. And the four had the face of an eagle. And such were their faces. Their wings were spread out above. Each had two touching another being, two covering their bodies, and each went straight forward. Whether, wherever the Spirit was about to go, they would go without turning as they went. So I imagine John is standing from a certain perspective looking, and he sees four different perspectives of these four different living creatures who are described in this way as a lion and a calf, a man and a flying eagle. They are in the center. They are around the throne. They are nearest it. They seem to be what Ezekiel 10 says, 10, 15. Then the cherubim rose up, and they are the living beings that I saw by the river, which he describes in chapter 1, Chabar. The four living creatures here 
understanding them as this exalted order of angels, frequently associated throughout Scripture with God's throne, God's power. Why? Eyes on every side, because they are aware these do not sleep. They are always serving the Lord. They are always praising the Lord. Their wings, it would seem, denoting their service, responsibility, their, their privilege to always be constantly worshiping and serving the Lord. Some look to the, the animals as a relation to the created world. And in that fashion, they see it as the lion representing wild creatures, the calf, domestic animals, eagle, flying creatures, and man, the pinnacle of creation. Which makes some sense, I think, as we flow into this hymn of praising God for his created order, for his creation. And Isaiah, you see, they, they use those wings that cover themselves. Isaiah 6.2, with two of the wings, they cover their faces. With two, they cover their feet. And with two, they flew, it says, around the throne, worshiping the Lord. For them, these creatures, their primary role is worship. It's their privilege. It's what they do. It's what God made them for. And you see them here as John describes them. And you wonder, what are they doing? They're doing what everything living thing is doing around the throne, which is praise. And so we see here that to the throne, they're singing. And they're not alone. They're singing with the 24 elders. We will see, look at the second half of verse 8. What are they singing? What is the content? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne... To him who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders, the church, will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and because of your will they existed and were created. The scene of heaven is one of worship. Worship here for creation and Chapter 5, a worship of redemption. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. It's kind of a, yes, a strange picture of these four creatures and these 24 elders sitting on 24 thrones. But you get the idea. It's it's as complicated as we can make this. The simple truth that he is on his throne, that he is reigning, is absolutely clear. I kind of have the picture of, a, of an orchestration or, or of an orchestra of different parts being sung, crescendoing all together. And this first movement, if you ever go to a concert, the first movement here is that of worship for His holiness. Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. It's just interesting. You don't see grace, grace, grace. You don't see mercy, mercy, mercy. You don't see righteous, righteous, righteous. But here and elsewhere, you see holy, holy, holy. This is the very nature of God himself, that he is perfect, set apart, distinct. It's the only attribute repeated this way. There are none like him, and that would be why this is a difficult place to describe in human language. 
they fall down. The angels, the elders, because what else would you do than to fall down at the throne? You would take all of your worry, all of your anxiety, all of your doubt, and just throw yourself. All things compale. All things become insignificant and meaningless in light of the glory of God revealed here. They don't care that they have a throne. They don't care that they have a crown. They toss him at his feet. They know all good things come from him. In verse 11, the church there, which we sing now in anticipation of singing then, worthy are you. Worthy, why? Because he's worthy both to be the judge, because he's the creator, it's his creation, to be the redeemer, and ultimately worthy of all worship. I don't think we need to highlight too much, verse 11, that this idea of creation is important. Genesis 1-1, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And throughout Revelation, if you really want to, I'd recommend either, uh, I have a, my D group's been reading through Isaiah, and then reading, so I'm studying Isaiah and studying Revelation. It's really interesting to read both of them together. You see a lot of similarities. Obviously, there's a lot of Isaiah references being pulled in by John, by the, by the Spirit. But another place that I think you'll find fascinating is if you read Genesis along with Revelation. So some of you may start a reading plan that starts in Genesis in January, and you'll start to see these things. You'll start to see this is really the, the recreation. Everything's getting folded and brought together from the beginning until the end. And God is being praised because he is the creator of all things. You and I are existence because of him. By him, all things are created. Why end here with this creation hymn? And there's a sense in which if we're studying, four and five go together. But we're not going to preach through four and five this morning together. But understand, take it as a whole because look at verse 14, if you would, just real quick in uh, chapter 5. We end the same place, right? We kind of get back up to worship the Lord for his redemption. We're all going to end up with the four living creatures, amen, and the elders are falling down and worshiping. That's, that's the sum here. That's where we're headed next week. But there is an emphasis here that everything that happens, everything that happened from the beginning in Genesis 1 till this moment in time, which is about to pour out God's wrath in the seven seals, we're going to look for one who's able to break each one of those seals, which is going to be Christ. And every one of those things has happened throughout history, throughout your life, as part of God's creative purposes. He is not surprised. We're living it. I don't know what tomorrow holds, and therefore I am surprised, but he is not. This is what awaits. This is what awaits the church. This is what awaits you if you are with Christ. Worship, redemption, praise. But you can't help forget that the context actually is judgment's coming. Judgment is coming. So I'd ask you this morning, if you're here, do you have a relationship with Christ? Do you know him? Do you trust him? If after this sermon, I guess I'll probably sneak out that way maybe and I'll be at the door, but if I was back here, and you saw me back there. You're somewhere here in the front row. You saw me in the back. 
and you got up and ran as fast as you could at me and gave me a huge hug. It would be really awkward. I'm not really a big hugger. I make exceptions. If you're a hugger, I will make exceptions for you. It's my pastoral duty. But I'm not that big of a hugger. My wife's worked on it. My wife's family tries. You know, my poor mother-in-law, I think, is still, you know, love you, Christmas. It's kind of, you know, a side hug. I try. Blame, blame my parents the way I was raised. But it would be awkward, right? You run back and you give me, I go, what are you doing? Why are you hugging me? Right? But I can promise you at some point in the next 30 minutes, one of my four boys will come out of nowhere. It could be perceived as a tackle, but it's, especially Riker, right? Because he's adorable. And he's going to come up and he's going to give his dad a hug and you go, perfect. I'm going to embrace him and go, that's right. You should hug your dad. But it's because I have a relationship with him. Depending on what relationship you have with the Lord, which relationship you have with Christ, it's going to depend if the Lord embraces you in grace and mercy or in the judgment, judgment that is about to come. And so it serves as a great reminder as you see the throne. You can look at it different ways. But everyone can look at it in this way, which is to say this is something else. Something we have not seen. And yes, we've seen the Lord's mercy and grace in our lives through salvation. But experientially, this is still to come. And it should cause us to pause and evaluate where we are and evaluate how we live. And being reminded that there is a future that awaits, that he holds, and we can have confidence and comfort in that truth because he is sitting on his throne and he is reigning. Let's pray. Father, there is a higher throne. You are worthy we see authority and we see power displayed throughout creation, in your animal kingdom, in creatures. We see power displayed through humanity, in government, in military might, in political power, in business, financial but there is a higher throne. A higher throne than this world has known. Where faithful ones from every tongue will come. Lord, you may you use us as your church to sing now. As we look forward to singing then. May you use us as a means that we have a job left to do to be about sharing the good news of your gospel, that we would make more worshipers of you, that there would be the fulfillment through the means of your church, that every tribe of every tongue and every nation would bow down before you and worship. Encourage us through these words as we even sing them now. Encourage us that you are on your throne. We ask this in your son's name. Amen.